1: all right everybody welcome back to the state of america podcast i am david and i've got my uh my good buddy Ian on the other line and uh ian uh it's good to see your face this early this morning normally we record at night but it's uh it's good to good to see you bright and early
2: yes i am uh bright eyed and uh bushy tailed as they say and uh ready to go it is early for us
1: well this week uh we're really lucky we've got a uh a guy that's a big fan of the band and uh is going to sit in with us this week. It's going to be a sit-in. Mr. Don Lane. Don, how's it going? Going
3: really well, guys. Thanks for having me.
1: We'll get into kind of your relationship with the crows and about crow's feed and everything. But, you know, Ian and I kind of like to talk about uh, hot topics, I guess you could say. Kind of like the view. I can't believe I just referred to the view on here. But anyway. uh, Which one am I? (laughs) I'm not saying, Ian. Um, So... I sent you the, the link to uh, Eddie Trunk's interview with Steve Gorman this week. Did you have a chance to listen to it?
3: I did. I did my homework. I listened to it yesterday.
1: Did you listen, <laughs> in? I I did. Okay. So uh, I listened to it as well, and obviously Eddie Trunk, uh, one of the kind of premier rock, I guess you want call him, journalists or interviewers, and um, it was really weird. I thought that their paths had never crossed before, and they kind of mentioned that a couple of times, that, you know, how did we never uh, cross paths, but... It was a really good uh, interview. Uh, It was about an hour and forty-five minutes, and normally his interviews come from his radio show. And as he explained in this one, it was a podcast exclusive. Interesting to get you guys take the the main thing I got out of there that was newsworthy is that Steve said he would sit in with the with the crows again if it was for the right reasons, not a tour. If it was like a benefit, or, or he even mentioned his I guess his brother has some type of a neuro uh, degenerative disease. Uh, I, I think that's right. Uh, and he would, you know, if they were raising money for that, or if they were raising money for COVID or whatever, I thought that was interesting that, that, that he said that.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, Steve is a, uh, is a classy guy. And, uh, I think, uh, a lot of times the reason trumps the feelings for him, you know, like, uh, he carried on after by your side because the opportunity with, uh, with jimmy page where he was you know if you read the book he says he was considering packing it and then and then uh, you know of course he kept going forward
1: don what are your thoughts i think that
3: was his way of saying never say never i bet you none of them really want to close the door for good even though it's hard to see a situation where they would actually get together even for a benefit i i, I liked hearing that because i think it was his way of saying never say never i also think it was like a maybe a polite answer He's also a year after publishing the book, so you know I think that he even talked about how he, the more time passes, the more peace he uh, he has with his decision and in the book and in the band. But I also get the sense that there's still an underlying pride in what that band accomplished and his role in it, and why wouldn't he want to play together under the right circumstances
1: We've seen David Gilmore and Roger Waters share the stage for uh, a good cause, and then. I guess Gilmore had a, a a charity benefit about 10 or so years ago. Roger Waters showed up. They played like two acoustic songs. And then Gilmore went and played um, Comfortably Numb on the Wall Tour. So, I mean, if those two guys can work it out for a good cause, anybody can.
2: Yeah, I think it's a small doses kind of thing with those two. You know, <laughs> yeah. the one-offs and things like that.
1: But, um, yeah, I thought it was a, a really good interview. And it's that book... You know, it just gets nothing but praise. And I think one of the great things you can say about that book is I've had a lot, seen a lot of people online say, I'm not a fan of the Black Crows, but I've read this and I loved it.
2: I I didn't realize uh, until Don just mentioned, was, you know, we're a year out from that thing being having been released. That's a, that's crazy. So it's had time out there to to marinate, you know.
3: Well, I mean, they always have been and still are a great great story you know so if you love music or you love the dynamics of interpersonal teams or bands you know
2: when they when they put out the paperback version recently they didn't do what a lot of people do when they put out the paperback is include a couple extra chapters or something something to entice you to buy the book again really but i would have liked to have seen some uh some some of the leftovers because i understand that that the released book is about half the size of the original manuscript
1: yeah, I think he said it was 950 pages that he turned in. He has said numerous times that basically the stories got repetitive. It was the same thing, but it was just a different location or different different people involved. So I would I would love to, to see those. I mean, he told the story about them going on court TV, which he said, you know, didn't really have any bearing on the rest of the book. And that's why they left it out. I think that's fascinating yeah that's a great story have you guys ever seen that video
2: not the uh not the full thing i've seen you know excerpts and things and i mean it's kind of a trip to see those guys sitting there in suits and uh if i remember right from the from the behind the music years ago chris had said that rich bought a suit a different suit for every day of that trial (laughs) which he thought was kind of cool
3: yeah that was funny they look so young in those videos it's crazy how time has flown that's that's one other takeaway from that
1: well Gorman, Gorman certainly had enough suits stored up from the uh 92 93 tour to uh he, he should have been all right for a long trial. He had some uh dapper suits on the uh bio side tour as well. He did. Quite the, <laughs> quite the snazzy dresser for a rock drummer. I'm sure dapper is is the adjective that you'd want to be associated with them, no doubt. He is a great interview though. I mean it's it, I understand why he has a has had a, you know, the sports talk radio show. And now he's got the music radio show. I mean, he is, he's a, he's one of the all time great storytellers. From my experience,
3: that's him. He's just, he is a great, great guy. Um, You know, he's funny. He's smart. He's a nice guy. He's got an unbelievable memory. So I've had the fortune of hanging out with him a few times and gotten to know him, you know, over the years, he's got an unbelievable memory. And the thing about the book is that it's totally consistent with, everything that he's ever shared with me or I've heard, I've heard him talk about. I mean, that book is true and I cannot believe how well he remembers stuff.
2: He really seems to be the, uh, like the archivist for the band. Really. He remembers all the stuff and he, he's like the, he carries the torch for the band and the time when they weren't, you know, active and doing things. And, uh, you know, he's the one that I think ultimately is going to keep the past memories alive, uh, of the band. I mean, but he's just, a. Uh, he's a great conversationalist and he's he's fun to talk to i mean you know i think we've mentioned this before but you know when we did our interview with him you know beforehand sometimes people say well i, I don't want to talk about this or i'd rather stay away from this and he, he said to us you know guys just before we start and i know both of us thought all right here comes everything we can't talk about and he says right. uh, anything you want to ask me you can ask me nothing's out of bounds you know and he's just very giving and in, in what he'll talk about and it's it's refreshing
3: Well, you you talk about him as as the archivist and the the owner of the story right now, I guess, I think, I think that's pretty symbolic. It's a good point because I think he, I think he always has been the glue. So I've got kind of a unique take on the crows that I think might be different from what the message boards and a lot of conversations I've had with other crows fans and what most people would think. But I think that the interesting angle on the crows is that the story isn't the rivalry between the brothers. I mean, that's, that tension is, I think, a big factor in everything about them. The music, the shows, the, the hiatuses, and the, the ebb and flow of the band. But that's not a rivalry. Like the, you know, Chris has won almost every game in that rivalry. You know, Rich has some wins in the win column, but that's not really the rivalry. I think that the real story of the Crows is the competitiveness between Steve and Rich musically and Steve and Chris personally. He I think Steve really pushed Rich musically. They learned and I'm not, not here to say he taught Rich anything, but I think they have both talked about how they learned how to play their instruments together. And that that comes through in their early work, that comes through in I think their best work from from the latter day. And that kind of the way that Steve could propel Rich or intuitively feel where Rich was going and Rich playing off him, I think is the sound of the band. I think we all love Mark and Eddie and all the contributions that they made and taking them into the stratosphere on certain, you know, at certain moments. But I think that, you know, unless you get Rich, Chris and Steve together, it's not going to it's not going to sound like them. So I think he pushed Rich musically. And I think the rivalry that Steve had with Chris is probably more personal. It feels like to this day, you read the book and having seen the interaction and then also just even, you know, from the of late, I think that the only guy probably in the world who can tell Chris the truth, who has told Chris the truth since he got famous is probably Steve. And, and once Chris stopped um, listening to Steve, like the story ended. I just get the sense that, you know, that is actually the real angle in here. And I think that's that's why Steve has kind of written the book. He wrote the book. To tell the story because he kind he felt that the crows were writing him out of the story. Contractually, the way they talk about him in the press. And he's never said that to me, and I've actually never even talked to him about it. But you know, as a huge fan who's followed them all from the beginning and and know a lot of the ins and outs just through osmosis and, and just watching and listening and, and and just learning about the band. It feels like, you know, the the three of them are the story. And that until the three of them get back together, the story's not going to finish.
2: I would tend to tend to agree with that. That's a very fair assessment. I mean, when they got back together, I wasn't surprised that Luther or Jackie or Sven or any of the other people weren't involved based on what they were saying uh, in the press. But it was just surprising to me that Steve wasn't involved because uh, to me, the core of the Black Crows really always was Chris, Rich and Steve. And it's it to me. It's I'm willing to to go to the shows and 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 see the performances because I I still enjoy what the Robinson Brothers do. But I'm I'm very very apprehensive of what the sound will be like without, you know, Steve as the backbone. It's it's concerning to me in a lot of ways.
1: You know, everybody loves the Mark Ford era, but Luther Dickinson was more than capable of of of, of playing with them. You know, oddly. People give Audley a hard time, but it sounds to me like Audley had some constraints on him. But I mean, he's certainly a more than capable player and could fit into that sound of the band at that time, the By Your Side Lines era. But to me, when I watch the videos of of, of the Crows now of the new band, the thing that I worry the most about, and I'm going to go see them and support them. Always going to support the Robinson Brothers, but. Rich plays really loud. I mean, that's no—that is no secret. I mean, we've had you know Jeff Dunn and Drew Consavo on here saying you know he plays loud, and Steve played the drums really loud. Steve is as hard of a hitting drummer as you're going to see. And you know when I watch these videos with the new drummer, and 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 I'm sure he's you know a great drummer, but he's not hitting them hard like Steve. You know, and and I just. uh, I, I i'm like you ian that's the thing i'm most interested to hear live because i'm not going to judge anything over a a video that i see on youtube or whatever you know the drumming and, and steve was part of it and we saw when they got back together in 05 the first couple of weeks that they had bill playing the drums obviously he you know he didn't do a satisfactory of enough job i mean it's on camera of Chris, you know, being upset with him. So I, 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 tend to agree with you, Don, that you know, from from a musicality standpoint, that that Steve's right in there with with is is equally as important.
3: Well, I'll give you a, like a couple of examples. Just doing all my Crow's Feed research, which I'm addicted. I've always been addicted to the band, and it's real, Crow's Feed's a great outlet for that because I get to look at all the old stuff. But here's a few examples that stand out. So sometimes Salvation is an unbelievable Chris vocal and. You know, one of the great guitar solos of all time from Mark Ford, in my opinion. But that song is 12 seconds of Mark and three and a half minutes of Steve Gorman kicking ass on that song. Then you've got like, I, I was I tweeted this out a few weeks ago. There's a show from Essen, Germany in 96, where they open up with one mirror too many. You watch that, that show, the whole show, watch Steve. But the first song, that opening riff is underneath it, propelling that riff is the snare drum start. And then Mark's solo underneath is just Steve on the toms and, and just all over the kit, more animated than he normally is, just propelling it forward. And if you look through the whole show, you, there's great camera angles of the whole band, in particular Steve. You can kind of see like he's swinging through the whole thing, and you can see the power that you're talking about. And then, and then the other thing I think, that's, it's not just the power. I think what makes him a great drummer and is indelible in their sound is just the taste. So, you know, Wiser Time, The Cowbell. How do you pull off a cowbell without being it without it being too much? I mean, it's been scooped everywhere, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: If that, that song played without the cowbell, which I heard on um, As the Crows Flies, and Tony's a great drummer too, but, you know, he's not Steve in, on Crows material. That's a huge signature of the song. And then the whole thing about, like, the, all the solos that take place through the eras, the guy that's controlling the ebb and flow of those solos is Steve. Whether it's Eddie or Adam, who took a very different take on it, or Luther or Mark or oddly, he's the glue, you know, and and so the sound is Chris's voice, Rich's open tunings and Steve's drums that and you could put great guitarists over it and keyboardists under it in a a solid bass player. They're going to be great shows. What we go to see, they're going to be great shows, but it's just not going to be what we know to be um, the best
2: of the crows. (laughs) I, I 100% agree, and uh, you know, I think the, the trouble a lot of people have with the Black Crows, not just you know the current version, but even in the past when it was somebody other than Mark, is uh, the fans of this band in particular really grab onto certain eras of the band and kind of more so than a lot of other bands I've seen. This particular music means a lot to to people. I mean, it means a lot to me, and and some people just can't have something that means that much to them. Altered in any way, so if it's not Mark and it's it's not you know whoever, th- that's it for them. They can't they can't get on board, and, and, and that's that really to me speaks to the power of their music ultimately.
1: Well, that's why I've always said I think it's a good thing that you have people that get mad that you know it's not Mark Ford or it's not Luther or whatever because that means at some point there was a incarnation of that band that truly meant something. To, if you didn't if it didn't matter, yeah. you wouldn't care. Like foreigner, I mean, I I could care less about foreigner. You go see foreigner. There's no original members on the stage, and nobody nobody cares about that because they're. I mean, in my opinion, they're just kind of the, They're they're a background band. Like if they come on classic rock radio, yeah, that's foreigner. I'll listen to it, but I'm never going to be like, man, I I got to go see Mick. You know, hot blooded with all the original members. You know, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. like,
2: there's one guy left in in foreigner, isn't there? Isn't it, uh, I don't, Mick Jones? I he, think is, is the only sits, original. He guy?
1: sits in every now and then. Sits in, yeah. So it's, it's no. Yeah, interesting. He he does a show every now and then, but yeah, you know, I've always said that about this band, and we've we've had numerous people on here say the same thing. There is something about this band that that people gravitate to, and and if you get it, count yourself lucky because there's a lot of people that don't get it, and if you get it, it really means something to you. You know, I mean, any emotion that I have in life, I can find a Black Crow song that'll either amplify that emotion or will mitigate the badness of it, so to speak, you know, make it not as bad. And there's very few bands for me that, that that are like that. There's always, you know, pieces of music that mean something to me, but there's just three or four bands that are just special. And and this band is very special to so many people. And I think that's why people get so upset if it's, you know, not Steve in there, or it's not Mark or, you know, not Ed, because there was an incarnation that truly spoke to them.
3: I think, yeah, and that came, comes through the studio music and the live work is, like they gave a shit, you know they about what they did, and they would kill albums that were great, could have been great classic albums. They fought their asses off probably because they cared too much. You know, I think that that comes through, and I think for fans who love music and you know love the visceral experience of it, whether it's through your headphones or at the show, you can see that in the passionate of the performance, the meaningful lyrics. Like when Chris was writing lyrics about himself, they were gut-wrenching lyrics. He was going through and still probably is going through tough times. When he's not writing about himself and he's writing about the lifestyle as opposed to him and his trials, it's not the same. So it's like I think that fans associate certain songs with certain parts of their lives and certain band lineups with certain parts of their lives and it's hard for them to let go of that. But for someone like me, I'm with you guys, like I'm an optimist and and I see the goodness in everything they've done. And I I love all their work. I really do. I mean, there's, there's a couple things and you guys will probably disagree with, I know you guys will disagree with the things that I think is the weakest stuff in their repertoire, but even that I, I still love that too. Um, so, you know, I'm optimistic that these shows will be enjoyable. I'm also optimistic that down the road they will get back together, at least the three of them that might be a little bit of a pollyanna kind of point of view but i just feel like it's kind of inevitable
2: <laughs> i think too like i think a thing a lot of the the fan base forgets about sometimes it's like oh well, they're getting back together let's for example they're getting back together and mark ford's not there but you're you're under the assumption that mark ford wants to be there at this point right. and, you know maybe that factors into it too from my understanding and i wouldn't blame him he's he's wanting to distance himself from that part of his career for the time being because he's been in and out of the ranks, both with the black crows and with, you know, he was the whole magpie salute situation. Right. So, you know, it's, you don't even know if they asked him at all or, or, and he turned them down and, uh, you know, it's things like that. I think people tend to forget about too.
1: Yeah. They have to, they have to want to do it, you know? All right. So Don, you mentioned crow's feed and, um, crow's feed is for people don't know is a, twitter handle that post us a lot of really good uh video and interesting nuggets about the black crows and i uh, did not know who was behind that until last weekend and uh kate thompson who has been on here and big supporter of our podcast and sometimes stalker of chris robinson uh
2: <laughs> sometimes
1: <laughs> sometimes chris robinson stalker she uh messaged me and 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 kind of let me know that, that you were the man behind uh, Crow's Feed. So why don't you tell people about Crow's Feed and why you do it and kind of how it started? Thanks for the plug.
3: I now <laughs> have a comma in the number of followers. I think I have 1,010 followers <laughs> That's at awesome. last check. I'm so proud of it. So I love the Crows, and I think it's criminal that they are as underappreciated in the annals of history, rock history as they maybe are, not among us. But among the masses, also I think that the narrative of the last ten years has been well forever, but the last ten years has been the dysfunction and etc. and not on the music. I also think that there's tons of new fans that may not know all the little nuggets of information, all the things that made them special to me when I started. And I thought, you know, I've been a fan since 1990. There were special things that happened along the way that I think had been lost in the tides of history and washed away. So I want to bring them back. And so I say in the description of the of the feed I, it that it's that crows feeds here to preserve the legacy of the black crows. Cause I think, you know, they've self-sabotaged that. And so in a way I want to keep it alive until hopefully they, they someday come back together. So the way it started was, you know, I've got become friends with a lot of people over the years through going to shows and, and stuff. And I had a friend I worked with and he's now, I would call him one of my best friends here in Boston, a good friend over the years, this guy, Mitch, who, you guys probably know as Steve's sidekick with Brandon on Steve Gorman sports podcast from 09, 10, 11, come kind of around that era. So we were buddies and we decided that we should start this blog called Crows Feed to do just what I'm talking about. We had started it for about a month or so and that's right when, what was it, 14, when Rich and Steve announced what Chris had done and said the thing is over and Mitch just didn't have... His heart in doing it. And so I didn't really have the time to be writing blog and, and long missives about my dorky obsession with the crows. But I thought, wow, Twitter's perfect. And Crow's Feed's great because it's like little morsels of, of crows' nuggets. So I just start, started doing it. And I picked up Steve maybe the last year or so once the book came out because I was like, wait a second, they're going to go out with a whole new band. People need to know what the legacy of the real band is in all of its incarnations. So there's no bias towards the golden era, even though that's my favorite era. You know, Jackie, I think played really well. I think that's underappreciated.
2: I also do agree that when Jackie Green was on, he was on on some of those tracks. Some yeah. of them, he he didn't seem like he was comfortable or had worked out his place in the song but the moments that he hit his stride in certain black crow songs it was it was really good and there are some moments on that 2013 tour that really deserved to be revisited and uh probably revered a little bit more than they were because a lot of people have a sour taste for that 2013 tour i'm not one of them i understand why you know it necessarily wasn't the most well-received thing but i think it deserved more credit than it got
3: yeah i think the thing about them you know they're way better musicians all of them than they were in the golden era. Mm. They don't have the same energy or the, the fire that they may have had or the, you know, the emotion. And it may have come across that they were going through the motions, but you know, I went to a few shows and they were not. They're pros. They show up on time, they play a great show, and I think that people wrote off Jackie. And I think that, you know, I think you're right. I think there were hits or misses and it wasn't nearly as consistent or as it didn't get to the heights of other eras. But there were moments where his tone suited them really well his background vocals helped a lot and i think as the as it went on he got better so it's too bad that that was as short-lived i wonder if he would have been the guy in 15 had they done the 25th i think it could have worked of course we all would have wanted mark and maybe that could have happened given he did show up in 16 for magpie but anyway we're spending way too much time talking about jackie green (laughs) but anyway my point is is that is that Crow's Feed's really all about capturing 92 to 97, which I think is the golden era and making sure that's not forgotten, but also recognizing and appreciating all the other good stuff that took place over the years.
1: I've learned, I've learned a lot, especially kind of like you'll say like, you know, on this date or whatever this happened. And cause I, you know, I was a casual fan through the nineties. I didn't become like we all are until like 98 or so. And so a lot of my knowledge has always been catch up, you know, trying to catch yeah. up uh, and, you know, through the message boards and then just, you know, reading things. But I, I've really enjoyed it. Hey, you need to throw a few of those followers over our way. We're close to a comma, but we're not quite at a comma. Uh, so we, we we, uh, we, we, need a, we need a comma in our followers. So you mentioned 1990 is your kind of your starting point with the yeah. band kind of how, how did that happen? I I'm, would assume it's shake your moneymaker like it is everybody else, but kind of how, how did they come on your radar?
3: I think I'm a bit of an old soul when it comes to music. My dad was a music lover and record collector, and he was actually like a a quasi musician and songwriter too. So I had a real affinity for music. And through osmosis, I loved 60s and 70s classic rock, but especially the greats, you know, Dylan, Stones, Beatles, Major. But also, he got me into stacks. So I was the only, you know, 17, 18 year old in high school who. Even knew what stacks was you know and but i loved it i couldn't get enough of it and so i was born in 70s so 90 i'm in college and and at this point in first couple years of college i i grew past um you know the obvious stones stuff that everybody knows and really was like totally hooked on the big four albums from beggars banquet through exile and i'm in the middle of this obsession and my college roommate called me and he said, hey, I saw this thing on MTV, this band. I think you're really going to like them. So the next day I was like mowing the lawn and I took a nap afterwards and I'm lying down on a couch and MTV's playing. And in like in my subconscious, I think it had to be jealous again. And I, and I woke up and I looked at the end and there in the lower left of the MTV screen was like Black Crows, Jealous Again, directed by Pete Angeles. I can still picture it. And I was like, damn, these guys are good. I wonder if that's the band. I couldn't remember the name of the band what he had told me the night before Next thing you know, Hard to Handle comes out, Otis Redding, stacks, and I was like, holy shit, these guys are my age, and they play this music. And so there's that, and I bought the album, and of course loved it, and I thought, I mean, I personally think it's, I can't think of a better debut album from top to bottom with incredible songs and great performance. Then the next two years, you get Rolling Stone magazine cover, And Chris is interviewed, and my favorite song off Exile, my favorite lyric off Exile is, the sunshine bores the daylights out of me. And in that interview, Chris talks about how that hooked him kind of on, I forget how he talked about it, but he says that's like the greatest lyric he's ever heard. So I was like, man, these guys get me. They're my age. Then you've got Southern Harmony was mind-blowing. High as the moon, unbelievable mind-blowing experience. They show up on at the end of 92 on Saturday Night Live, and they play nonfiction. Out of nowhere, they're at the peak of their powers. They have the number one record in America. And they play nonfiction. And they crushed it. And, I, and, of course, no one knew what that was until 1994 when it came out on America. I was like, these guys are just badasses. They do whatever the hell they want. And they're great. And so that hooked me. And that's how I became a fan for life. You know, B-sides, covers, they opened my eyes to new music. You know, all the stuff that we all have experienced with The Crows all of
1: that, but that's how it started. Well, let me ask you about the um, Saturday Night Live thing, because you're, you're you're involved in the corporate world. While we all like applaud that and think that's cool, that kind of stuff actually hurt them commercially, though. I know what you
3: mean. I don't think that one did, because the album had already been number one it's seven months after they launched it, so I don't think that hurt them commercially. I do think it turned off casual fans when they didn't play what was expected in certain situations, and I think their choices of singles... Lead-off singles, by and large, has sucked and hurt them too. Steve's talked about the Amorica cover was a horrible decision. So I don't know if that's the best example, but I think it's a. I think your point is well made, David, that they they've sabotaged themselves in a lot of ways. That's one of the ways they did it. But it's actually one of the things that I and you and Ian and probably a lot of people listening love about them is that kind of no fucks attitude.
1: Right. <laughs> um,
3: I think they could have harnessed the no fucks attitude and still listen to pete (laughs) and they probably would have had a much different experience as a band and um but you know they're artists and that's my thing with the decisions they've made is i'm all for the artist and if that's where that took them warts and all just i hope they hope they continue to follow their muse
2: you know it's it's funny because some of those decisions i think maybe would have been muted a bit more, but they were also on uh, Deaf American, which became just American, you know, Rick Rubin's label. And right. Rick Rubin is a guy that likes to stir up controversy. So, you want to put a, a Hustler picture as the cover of your album, I'm sure he's going to say, yeah, go for it because that attracts attention. But yeah. unfortunately, it's to me, that's attention in the short term, really. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, what's the saying? There's there's no such thing as bad press, as long as you uh, spell the name right. <laughs> 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 um, all right, so... Shake Your Money Maker like everybody else is when you first hear them. When's the first time you see them? I actually saw them
3: walking on the streets of London in the summer of 90. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, the first show I saw was wa- opening for Robert Plant down in Richmond, Virginia. They held their own. They were great. And then I didn't see them live again until High as the Moon. And I was in the first row of the balcony in New Haven. They're a theater band the best shows I've ever been to for them are in theaters, and the worst shows I've ever seen of them are I've been outside, which is a little worrisome, given <laughs> what's going on with Live Nation. But um from that vantage point on that tour, when that curtain opened up, I mean, I have chills right now thinking about it to this day. and that was just otherworldly uh, experience. But I've seen them, you know, in a lot of cool shows around around you know mostly the United States, but also overseas. and in, in weird venues and, you know, some of their most memorable shows I happen to be at, some of the weirdest shows I happen to be at, and some shows that, you know, mean more to me, even though they're not, like, famous Crow shows, just because of who I was with or what happened that night, you
2: know. What were some of the more uh, notable shows, you know, in the, the Black Crows lore that you were at, you know, what is, you, were at, you, you mentioned you were at some of the notable ones?
3: Well, I was at, uh, so this is in a show, I was at um, Levon's for Cabin Fever. 10 feet away from Chris, eight feet away from Adam. Larry Campbell, when he would do his thing, he stood in the crowd. He was like in the first or second row. Like, like we literally rubbed elbows, meaning like we bumped into each other a lot. <laughs> Whether <laughs> he was playing the pedal steel or the fiddle or uh, played acoustic too a little bit. That was, that was incredible. Just to see your favorite band play. Now, I'm addicted to the Crows. I know everything that comes out before it comes out, you know, like, like a lot of fans do. So this, we had no idea what was coming. And now I know they boot. someone had put a boot, it was the first night of the second weekend, and the, I listened to one song on the bootleg that had come out, and I was like, you know, I'd want, I want to be fresh. And that was just insane. A couple things about it. First of all, just, the, I happened to be at a night where they played a bunch of this, um, the better tunes off of that double album. So that was great. Oh Sweet Nothing, Appaloosa. So a couple things about that. One was just how good, fucking good they are and in particular rich and steve just watching them in the moment and then also chris you know he he like led the he was like the band leader and doing his thing but he was like very focused on doing a great job as they all as they all did so that that was one thing the other thing was just the intimacy of it all Were, were you guys there unfortunately no so it was in like his barn in the back of the the room was a fireplace, and they play "Appaloosa," and it's Chris. I think it's a beautiful song. He killed the first take, and as it's ringing out at the end, some guy falls into the he Like leaned up against the fireplace, and he fell in, and it was like cacophonous sound, and it ruined the take. Oh. And I was ready for the band to go, and they all just started laughing. And they and Chris, I guess, counted it off. They played it again, and they topped it. Wow. The other thing that was cool about it was there was a moment, I forget, I could look up my notes because I, I put it up on, on, um, on uh, Crow's Base, my, my review, which was a little over the top as we all have like the rose-colored glasses right after we see a show. But there was a moment where Rich and Chris like got into a spat and they were trying to be discreet about it because there was a crowd there. But their body language was basically like, if you say one more thing, both of them like, I'm going to punch you right now. And I was just <laughs> really glad I saw that. There's probably some overdubs on that. Hard to believe there's not, but I'm telling you, I was there. Those, I'd say 95% of that record is recorded live, and that's the take. Pretty amazing. But like, I was at the Letterman appearance in 01 when they played soul singing. That was cool. I was at the Lupo show the night before Madison Square Garden in 05 that it, which you know I think when I hear the recordings or see the video it doesn't hold up to my memory I think it might have been one of those shows where you had to be there but it was awesome Town Hall in 08 they played you know two sets of acoustic I think it was two sets and that was cool for longtime Crows fan the inside thing people will know don't miss Sayerville I didn't miss Sayerville that was an amazing show I don't know if you guys know what that's all about but that was incredible
2: the Sayerville thing, I remember the, the phrase, but I don't remember the reason why that, that evening was particularly... It, what, was the, uh, what was the story behind Sayerville? I forgot.
3: I can't remember if it was Boa that posted it. But someone you know on the inside posted, like, here's how you get there. And, it's, and at the end, it says, don't miss Sayerville. And it was unclear whether that was, like, don't miss Sayerville because it's a small town. It's easy to drive past it. But it was the last show of 06 with Paul and Rob Cloris and we didn't know if this was the end and it was kind of the fact he or whoever posted it did it it was kind of like you may never see these guys again so I invented a business trip which I'm known to do to be in New York and I rented a car instead of going to a like a client dinner and I drove down to Sayreville, and I met some people from the board who hooked me up with a ticket we played for over three hours it was a great end of tour show for them where they just left it all out there Like chris is playing electric on downtown money waster and he and took a solo and actually kind of pulled it off but they, it was mostly covers you know great tunes from that era and they left it all on the table like they always do at the end of the day they i think are really proud of how amazing they are and they and that was an amazing show but like i was at the last show before the hiatus on halloween in boston and steve shaved his head um I was at center stage in New York in 07. Yeah, maybe you were there too when they played in Central Park and some guy named Luther Dickinson sat in a year before Warpaint and played a bunch of tunes. And it was obvious that he'd been in circle sound, but it seemed like it was a tryout. other thing I was, I was in the control room for a lot of the magpie salute the first day, first couple days of um, Woodstock in 2016. I've talked my way into the control room and that was cool because Rich was intense. He kept coming in and out. Um, and Mark and Eddie weren't on stage yet. And it was just like the, the band and they had another guest artist. I forget who it was. was in there and the girls were there and they were playing, you know, kind of rich solo tunes. And I think, I don't know what they were doing, but anyway, Rich, Rich comes in and he's coming in and out and they're working on the sound and stuff. And I'm getting ready to leave because to go out into the crowd. Cause I just like the sound sounded better out there than in the room. And I look in the doorway and there's Mark. And so I'm like, I'm going to hang out in here. So, they go back out and they play, and Rich is playing something, and Mark like, is under his... He thinks I must be somehow connected, <laughs> and he starts confiding in me. Like, He's like, shit, why don't they turn Rich up? And Which I think is funny, because it's like, whoever told Rich to turn up, and definitely it wasn't the second guitarist, but in that moment, he's <laughs> like, they need to turn Rich. But he was rooting for Rich. It was kind of lovely. He was like, you know, he was rooting for Rich, whatever Rich was doing. And so we started chatting and, and stuff, and then it was time. Rich calls Mark on stage. I go, hey, man, nice to meet you. And he goes, you too. And I go, you're going to rip it up? And he looks at me. And he kind of walks away and takes two steps and turns around and looks back at me. He goes, I'm not in that business anymore. I'm not going to rip it up. I'm going to burn it down. (laughs) And I thought,
1: fuck, yeah. That was a great moment. How did you get to know the guys in the band?
3: Through... Well, I told you Mitch and Mitch's connection to Steve um, and my connection to Mitch. And then when the crows were coming through like Boston in 2010, one time Mitch, Steve and I went out to like a bar after one of the shows and, you know, seemed like exactly the kind of guy I hung out with in high school and college. Like he's one of us, you know, and we just kind of like, it was very natural and cool. And I think because it felt natural and, and normal, he started inviting both Mitch and me backstage, you know, after shows. He'd be tickets for us. And the kindness and the generosity of this guy, and his appreciation for fans is really genuine. You know, we didn't act like fans. We kind of acted like we belonged. And, you know, I've never asked the guy for a picture, even. I just want to have like eye contact and a handshake. One time I was out to dinner with Chris and a couple other people. And we sit down at this restaurant in Boston, and Super Tramp Goodbye Stranger comes on. Chris sits down, it's like right when we're sitting down, and he leans into the table with like this funny look on his face and starts belting out Goodbye Stranger in this restaurant in front of all these people. And then no one can hear it's a loud restaurant, it's one o'clock in the morning. And I'm thinking to myself, is he like taking the piss out of Supertramp here? Is he being ironic? Is he being funny? And no, like we asked him, and and he's like, no, I I love them. I love that song. And the thing that struck me about him. Like that's his, uh, he's authentically like into the song. He's into the music. He loves music, encyclopedia, uh, he, he, he's, he's got an incredible memory for everything, music. And
1: Well, I've always said they're, if you know Chris and Rich, if anything, they're students of music, and they're fans <laughs> of it, and they, they show reverence to those that came before. You know, I always thought one of the coolest things was, you know they played big time two weeks after that album comes out. So you mentioned to me in a text you you've got to hang out with CRB a decent amount.
3: Yeah, I don't want to like I definitely don't want to come across as a as a like douchey about you know overstating connection or like violating like abusing the privilege that I've had to like get to know these guys a little bit. But yeah, I did, and I love that music a lot. I love that music a lot, and that was a bunch of like the people in that band were really sweet people. They really are. Um, So that was that was cool that was cool but the, the best experience though was mitch and i in 13 it's october it's portland the thing's almost over and they've been on a bit of a break in the tour and the first night back they were going to be in portland for two nights so steve's like hey if you really if you really want to get to know the band saturday night's the night maybe it was friday sat the first night's the night because he goes we have nowhere to go because we're playing two nights and nobody hates each other because we've just been apart for the last three weeks. <laughs> so we go to the show, and the show's great. Then he invites us backstage. And that's, I'd met Chris before, but that was the first time we had hung out. And we go backstage and we hang out with him for like an hour backstage. It was me, Mitch, and Chris. Steve, like, gives us our space. That's how cool Steve was. And, you know, we're trying not to be dorky fans. And it was kind of weird that it wasn't weird. It was, we were talking about music and sports and even family a little bit. It was kind of surreal. But anyway. After an hour, Chris is like, hey, man, we're going to go to dinner. you guys want to join us? And <laughs> Mitch and I look at each other. We're like, uh, yeah, sounds good. <laughs> so We go out to the uh, bus, and there's still fans an hour after the show looking for autographs. And we walk past all the fans, and it's like all these hairy crows. And me and Mitch look like they're fucking accountants.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so we walk
3: on the bus, and then we go to the back, and there's Adam and Sven. And their tour manager was this guy, Brian Sarkin, who's also just a incredible guy so then we go to the front of the bus and it's just chris and rich and me and Steven Mitchell mitch are there for a while but they're good buddies so they they go off and for about a half hour i'm in the front of the bus with just those two guys and i'm like what's going to happen here they're talking about music they love chris is ragging on eddie better because he just saw a commercial that had pearl jam music or eddie in it then rich goes hey chris you know we've never played a paul mccartney song and he's like, what should we play? And Chris is like, I don't know. And Rich is like, no, we got to do that. I'm I'm like, I'm watching this happen. And Rich looks at me and goes, what do you think we should play? And I go, maybe I'm amazed. And they're like, oh, that's a good idea. Well, three months later, they're gone. Um, but... Magpie Plate, maybe I'm amazed, so I'll take credit for that. But anyway, so that was incredible, and I can't remember even all the stories in there. But I'm like, hey, guys, it's, now it's about an hour late, and like two hours after the show. I'm like, are we going to dinner? <laughs> so um, they're like, yeah, yeah, we got to get going. So the bus driver drives around the block, takes a right, a right, a right, goes in a complete circle because the restaurants are across the street or within walking distance of the venue. And I go, did we just go in a circle? And they're like, yeah, we had to disperse the crowd. So when the bus pulled away, so did the crowd and within 10 minutes we're back and now the crowd's gone. So we get out of the bus, we go to this restaurant and it's the whole day. All six of them, Brian, Mitch, and me. Wow. So if you want to know who the 8th and ninth Crows are, it's me and Mitch. (laughs) (laughs) Little less impact than maybe Billy Preston had on the Beatles. But anyway, um, so we sit down at the table and one of them goes, hey, guys, do you realize this is the only time this whole tour we've all been together at dinner? I forget who said it. Probably Adam or somebody said it. And they're like, oh, huh? that's interesting. And then at the end of the night, I wish I took a picture, but it would have been the wrong thing. It would have ruined it. So I'm glad I didn't. It's in my mind's eye, but... At the end of the night, Mitch and I started talking. We we're like, "I wonder if this, this is the Last Supper." And I haven't asked Steve, but I highly doubt they had dinner again ever. And so it was kind of cool to, you know, be the thirteenth at the table. I guess
2: that's really cool, man. Because you know, you you talked earlier about uh, waking up from a nap and hearing jealous again, yeah. on MTV. To going to, you know, being present with all the members at dinner. I mean, as a fan, that's got to be mind blowing. You know, it's uh, it's it's got it had to be an unbelievable experience.
3: It was. And, I, you know, I think the weird thing was that it wasn't weird. And there's something about the intimacy, about the music that you love. You feel like, you know, the people and then the risk. And I think f- this has probably happened for a lot of Crows fans is you meet your heroes and then you're disappointed. You know, I know people have not have had a lot of people have had, you know, I've seen the bad side of these guys never directed towards me, but I've seen it. So I know that's all real. Everybody's had their own real experience. But I just got super lucky. And um, yeah, it is weird. But the weird thing is that it wasn't weird and that's one thing that i feel really fortunate and all gratitude to steve gorman because even to this day i think he appreciates how much i love the band and how i want to keep it alive and he's never made me feel bad or weird about that he's like dude if you like the music that's great if you had a good experience that's cool
2: i think that you know what you're trying to do with crow's feet is is a very similar approach to why david and i started doing this is because We want to keep all the good aspects of the band's storied history alive and keep it in people's memory. Because the Black Crows aren't often part of the conversation when people are rattling off classic bands, and they should be. Their music is just as good, as, if not better, than a lot of the bands that are revered as you know the classic rock artists. And uh, you know, it's it's a necessary thing to, especially during the time when they weren't active, is to keep that that alive and i think it's important what you're doing with the crow's feet it's great
3: i think likewise right back at you guys i think that my momentum on crow's feet if you want to call it that or the amount of time i spend on it has been proportional to just you guys picked up i think a torch and started to carry it and i think people who love the music need to keep doing that you know back in the 90s there were people like doug fierro and frayed and badge names you might recognize of course who helped contributed and now this dutch woman who does um in the womb of the free, yeah. her video content is incredible. And I think that I saw on Facebook that now she's hooked up with Boa. Of course, Boa has been, you know, the main one. But even like Hagar, I actually met him at a, like, the second or third CRB show ever it was in Santa Cruz. And we connected on the board ahead of time because he needed help recording. So I met him ahead of time. And once in a while, we'll connect through social media or through texting or email or, or whatever. These people have done a lot. For the crows and a lot for the fans a lot and uh, you know i've always been into the shows and collecting the shows and bnps but i never taped i was never really able to share much and so this is my little way i think too of like being able to share my experience so that more fans can appreciate more of the good stuff from the crows
1: i could care less about interpersonal relationships within the band i mean i just i, I could i really good uh every one of us you come and and start analyzing our lives twenty four seven you 're going to find <coughs> negative things and negative interactions with with other people. Steve told us on the interview he said the fact that you guys are doing the podcast speaks to the fact that it meant something to you, and the fact that people listen to it and the same thing with 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 crow's feed. and it's good to kind of have a more positive outlet on them because you know the message boards can be what they are i I can tell everybody and this is breaking news that as of last night, Hager agreed to come back on and we've got a really cool thing we're going to do with him in a couple of weeks. So he will make his return to the, uh, the state of America podcast. But I find him, especially after we've, i talked with him on the phone a time or two before we did our interview with him and had him on. And like, I completely understand him now. And I find him, I find him extremely funny. And these people that try to punch back at him, like it's like going up against Muhammad Ali. You're going to lose.
2: It it is. And I, I, I years ago tried to punch back at Steve because I didn't understand where he was coming from at the time. And, and you are going to lose and it's you know now that i've spoken with him and 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 you know everybody's a little bit older i like the guy i think he's funny i think he i think he carries that same black crows torch the guy was out there he taped shows he distributes them to people constantly i mean he spends a large part of his time doing that he followed the magpie and and basically everything every decent non-professional recording a fan has of the magpie is largely credited to him You know what I mean? So his persona, I think, has redeemed
3: itself through his Magpie collection and sharing, but then also some of the rare archival stuff that he got out at the end of last year that Shine Daddy's taken and run with. Can you imagine if we didn't have people like this? You know, that would be such a loss. So, you know, I I don't care about the interpersonal relationships within the band. I I guess I do to some extent but at the end of the day, as long as they're playing music and that's what matters most to me. And also, fans on the boards are passionate, and I disagree with them. I'm not going to get bent out of shape about it. Everybody's got their own right. experience, and it's just entertaining to listen to.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right, so, Don, we're going to wrap this one up because we yep. have uh, numerous other ideas to have you on in the future. You know, the, the tradition here is the guest gets to pick the playout song. So yep. it's, your, uh, it's your time to, uh, to pick what you want us to play out. So I guess
3: maybe continuing the theme of earlier, me My point of view that the band is the three of them and that without Steve it doesn't sound the same. Let's go with words you throw away. It's just the three of them plus Johnny. There's no Eddie, no Mark. Chris's voice cracks. Rich has great riffs throughout. The time changes from Steve and it just kicks ass. So let's go with that.
1: All right, everybody, we want to thank Don for coming on. And like we said, uh, we we have plans to have him on numerous times in the future. Appreciate him taking a little time out. Ian and I will be back with you soon. And to play us out, words you throw away. Stay tall, everybody.